this crazy world we live in, when people use the word geek, it can create certain impressions. In reality, geek culture has never been more mainstream. Let's learn about the real people behind the stereotype. I'm your super dummy Paul. This is Geek. This is Dave Horrocks. You probably know me from Comics in Motion. You might also know me from the likes of VHS Strikes Back. You might know me from Chris and Dave's Reality Casts or many other podcasts that are out there in the podcast graveyard. I like to think of um, the podcasting that I do as kind of a an evolution. So I actually like to... Uh, analyze things and also agonize over things generally so probably one of my geek traits and one of the things my kind of partner in crime my podcast brother Chris he's more like a um, a bit more impulsive and so I, I often joke with Chris that while I'm checking all my safety on the on the parachute, I'm checking everything's uh, all in order. Chris has jumped out the plane, and I'm busy looking at his parachute. <laughs> so he kind of he's a good yin to my yang. He kind of he's wanting to go out there and do things very quickly, and I'm the busy kind of planning everything, and probably wouldn't have anything together at all, but. I think that's one one of the reasons together as a team we work quite well because sometimes when there is just a case of we need to go ahead and move forward with the project and just try it and see what happens from there, then you know that's usually Chris's influence and when there's a bit more planning involved and, and we need to actually you know let's think about how we approach this and uh, then that's where I come into it but left to our own devices chris would probably have about 100 podcasts all of which have you know three or four episodes and and i would still be scratching my head thinking about how i i get my first podcast live so you know that's one of the reasons as a partnership i think we work quite well i like to think i'm a i'm a good influence on chris because the movies or tv shows that will generally um review i like to look a few weeks in advance because one of the easy things when reviewing kind of comic-based TV and movies is to just gravitate towards the Marvel and DC stuff, especially in recent years, especially with the Marvel stuff, the way they've been handling themselves. And when we kind of embarked on, you know, setting up comics in motion, one of the things I wanted to do was to go to some of the properties where people didn't even know that it was based on a comic book. People think of the Supermans, Spider-Mans, Batmans. They're the kind of properties that you associate with comic books straight away. Whereas things like Kingsman, uh, Weird Science in the 80s, those things were based on comic books. And and I really wanted to push those forward. But if you're just kind of going week to week, you'll probably always gravitate to the spandex-based comic book stuff. So that's why I try and have things planned out a few weeks in advance. So, you know, I'll try and space things out with DC and 
Marvel and then make sure we're getting some uh, indie stuff in there. So a few weeks ago, we did Time Cop, which was based on uh, a Dark Horse comic, which Jean-Claude Van Damme starred in. Again, people probably don't even realize a lot of the time that that's based on a comic. Um, But part of my ambition or uh, mission statement really was to educate people on uh, the fact that comic books weren't just about superheroes. So a few weeks ago, Max and Tony covered a story about Green Lantern and Green Arrow. And even though it was about these two spandex-clad superheroes, which, you know, are quite widely known, and because of the TV shows, a lot of people, and and the movies, a lot of people know who certainly Green Lantern is and and Green Arrow as well through the Arrow series. Um, And listening to that show, you could tell that there were a lot of... um, social issues that were being brought to the forefront through that book and you can kind of because you put people in these fantastical bright colored outfits you can actually tackle some real serious issues through the prism of kind of superheroes and uh, you know i i think that's a really it's something you know i'm i'm mid 40s now but i'm still learning about how much depth actually comic books have because I think for a long time they've been considered this kind of low-class art, you know, looked down upon by everyone, looked down upon by artists, looked down upon by certainly screenwriters in Hollywood. You know, if you were a writer of comic books, you were never uh, considered on the same playing field. I, I remember seeing a, a documentary with Stan Lee. He was with um, Kevin Smith. It was one of those dinner table type things. He had J.J. Uh, Abrams there as well. And you've got Stan Lee there. One of the, and it's on YouTube if you if you want to go and look at that. But and it is a really good watch. But Stan Lee, you know the the master really of of popular comics. I would say. I know there's a lot of debate about, you know, how much credit other people should get. And and absolutely, people should get that credit. But you always need a salesman. That is one of the dirty little secrets of any business is you need those salesmen as well. And better than anyone, Stan Lee was that salesman. So, yeah, he probably didn't have the artistic input that he, that people think he might have had. But he absolutely sold it. And, you know, I, I think it was a really interesting uh, watch in this in this discussion with Kevin Smith because you could see that, well, he, he Stan Lee was almost embarrassed. You know, he was telling about if he was at parties and things, he'd just say he was a writer. He, he wouldn't say that he was a comic book writer. He'd just say he was a writer because he was a bit embarrassed about the comic book side of it. And it's just weird how... You know, unfortunately, he's passed on now. But of course, you know, he's revered as this kind of godfather of everything comic book now, isn't it? So his kind of persona has become this godlike figure, which again is way beyond reality. But you know, it's funny how things have turned around in in just a decade or so. Where we look back in kind of two thousand one and what we consider Stanley became. I think he's very different to how he lived a lot of his life. When I was growing up, I, I knew Stan Lee mostly from uh, probably the Incredible Hulk cartoons. 
he was always narrating at the start. And so you recognized his voice through that. And, you know, because we, we got some of the uh, American comics reprints. So we weren't getting the first-hand Marvel stuff that would hit the stand and it has like Stan Lee presents. So, you know, you look back at that stuff now and you can get hold of it now uh, if you've got a, a small island as a mortgage. Um, but, you know, I think <laughs> you know, he he did become something a lot bigger. But, you know, even up to the, to the mid-90s, you know, he had that small part in mall rats i think mall rats was about 96 ish um you know and he, he still wanted to break into hollywood and it was only through the stanley cameos he started to become this kind of legendary figure i don't think anyone actually identifies themselves as a geek when they're younger at least. I think when, she, when you approach middle age, you don't give a shit about it and you, you kind of wear it as a badge of honor. But when you're younger, no one actually thinks of themselves as that. And, you know, certainly I was, I was quite active. I used to love playing football. I was quite sporty. Um, when I was a little bit older, so my later teen years to my early 20s, even right up until I was 30, I was, I was in various bands you know, playing guitar and bass and whatever. So fancied myself as a bit of a rocker for a time. But when I look back, I mean, as a kid, I was always into all the superheroes and stuff. So I think Spider-Man probably sticks out as much as anything as a young kid. And people would buy you comics as well as the kind of superhero comics. You'd have the, uh, the Dandy and the Beano, but... Honestly, they never really grabbed me like the American comics did. There was just something about it. These fantastical heroes, right, as opposed to reading about Dennis the Menace. And and actually, it was only later when I got exposed to Viz that, that I started to find those things funny again. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I remember as a young kid, so say let's say six to about ten, I think being exposed to comics, I actually remember a particular Justice League comic, and I remember seeing Firestorm in there. So you'd kind of been exposed to these other characters like Batman and Superman just through pop culture. There was the obviously the 60s Adam West Batman that was constantly rerun on UK TV, and you also had Superman the movie and Superman 2 as well. So those things would be replayed and replayed. We had those on an old uh, first Betamax, and then we kind of moved across to uh, a VHS. But I think I, I kind of dropped out. It, it seems ridiculous now as I, as I stand there in middle age looking back, but probably about 10-ish, I thought, I've outgrown comics. In fact, I, I say 10, it must have been before that. It must have been about 8 when I thought I'd outgrown comics because I'm sure it was about 86. So I'd have been 10 where I discovered a classic X-Men number one, which was a reprint of giant size X-Men number one. And on this classic X-Men number one, I can see it in my mind's eye now that you had, 
um, the likes of Wolverine, Colossus, you had Storm, you had Nightcrawler. This was like the international version of the X-Men because before that, the original X-Men that Stanley and Jack Kirby had created was, uh, what was it, Bill Everett? I can't remember. But they basically created Cyclops, they created Iceman, they created Beast, Jean Grey, and Angel. Four white guys and one lady who, you know, is immediately all the guys fancy. Uh, and that's, there's no diversity whatsoever. But Giant Size X-Men, you know, that was when they added in a bit of diversity. And to be fair, you know, you had Wolverine, who's Canadian, you know, so it's not that diverse. But you had a Russian, you know, so in the 60s, that was kind of a big deal. I know Star Trek had kind of done that as well with uh, with Chekhov, but... I just loved the way these characters sort of jumped out of the page. And back then, as I, I read this story, and back then, you know, Wolverine kind of became this superhuman, uh, this Superman-level powered being where, you know, he could basically regrow himself from a, 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 an amoeba. So, so he became less fun in later years. But when I read that first story, I thought it was amazing. And just this team book, you had all these different characters that came to life. And so it wasn't just about one character. It wasn't just about Batman. It wasn't just about Superman. It wasn't just about Spider-Man. It was the way this team interacted. And so from there, so from 86, absolutely fell in love with the X-Men. And then so when, when the actual cartoon animated series came on in 92 you couldn't if i'd have made a wish for anything you know you you couldn't have granted me a better wish than that because it was just absolutely made for me and it's funny when i listen to a lot of comic creators now a lot of them seem to use that as a as a jumping on point it's like where did your love of kind of the marvel universe start from and a lot of them you know look back to that x-men animated series but that was that was me, and that was my jumping on point. Now, I probably went for somewhere between three and four years of basically trying to read as much as I could. I didn't have a really good run. There was, I mean, there were no comic book shops back then. Um, this was more like uh, your local news agents. I'm sure it was a John Menzies, if I remember. And you just had to get whatever they had. So, and I remember getting quite frustrated because you get to a, a conclusion of a story, and then they wouldn't have it that week, and you and you go the next week thinking, well, they must have it this week, and and it's not there then, and so you just it picks up, and you never found out what the the conclusion to the story was. But it was always a lot easier to get hold of the Marvel UK stuff as well. So things like. Uh, Spider-Man and Zoids, almost like Transformer dinosaur things. Um, again, just just an excuse. They they wrote these comics purely to kind of um, sell toys. That that was the big thing at the time. But and that, and actually, speaking of which, Transformers as well, of course, was done by Marvel UK. I used to quite like enjoy uh, enjoying reading those as well, which are, I think are reprinted by IDW now. But, I mean, those were a lot of fun as well. So I wouldn't say I kind of followed along with, you know, only X-Men. I was kind of a bit 
bit more of a tart in terms of comics. I'd, I'd try and pick up whatever whatever I could. And then probably before I kind of dropped off around 14, which which is about the time when young boys start to get interested in other things that aren't comics-based, um, I do remember picking up a few 2000 AD comics as well. So that's where I got exposed to the likes of Judge Dredd. Rogue Trooper is probably my favorite, even more so than Dread, um, because it felt like when I was about 14, it felt like that was me growing up again. You know, this was my second uh, time when I thought, you know, I'm kind of growing out of this now. I'm growing out of the whole superheroes thing. And, you know, these uh, these more mature stories are, are kind of where, uh, where I should be. And then it wasn't probably until about the mid 2000s because because from 14 you get interested in other stuff you know girls when you get to around 17 18 you're getting introduced to alcohol and going out to pubs and getting a kebab and what have you and comics just wasn't really high on my agenda and that's i started playing guitar when i was about 17 as well so then you start to get a bit loopy and you start to think oh if i just practice for a little bit longer you know i'll I'll go and join i don't know guns and roses probably at the time and, and you know be a massive rock star because i think one of the things 80s movies to- taught us was that you just have to practice for about a week and then you can be anything <laughs> you can be a uh, heavyweight champion of the world if you're on rocky or um, if you're on no treat, no surrender, you just have to put a bit of practice in and then you can be a Kung Fu champion, all of those things. So, you know, I got interested in lots of other individual things. I don't think while my comics, um, interest waned a bit through these times though, I never stopped being interested in the movies. Now, comic book movies and TV shows, and not like they are now. I mean, you you cannot, or I don't think you can, watch everything that's produced now. You know, you can watch the main movies, but if you want to watch all the TV shows as well, that is a huge undertaking of time. You know, with all of the DC, certainly like the CW shows and all the movies and even Marvel, you had all of the agents of shield. You had uh, the likes of cloak and dagger runaways, all these other individual shows. But back in uh, those kind of times in the eighties and nineties, just never, ever got bored of any of that stuff. And kind of late 89, you had the likes of uh, Tim Burton's Batman, which was absolutely huge at the time. What a brilliant, guerrilla marketing kind of approach you know all they did they showed a batman symbol that was it and people went absolutely nuts for it you know um and then i think about 92 they had batman returns which was a you know a a much darker property and then it went a bit weird with the schumacher years with batman but you did even at that time you did have these other kind of movies which you know were varying quality and it wasn't until 98 when blade came out when even marvel had a chance of of breaking into the movies because honestly before then everything that marvel did pretty much sucked um i mean people do like a bit howard the duck 
Uh, I don't know why, because it's awful. Um, what else did they do? They did Generation X was a thing. Uh, David Hasselhoff's Nick Fury. Um, I do have a little bit of soft spot though for, I must admit. <laughs> but yeah, so so I guess I, I, I'd always maintain that kind of love of of the comic book properties, but just these fantastical worlds where, you know, you you change something. You know, it's not like you're going into a Lord of the Rings type world. You, you're changing something. You know, maybe someone's got super speed, speed, and what can they actually do with that? What can they tell in terms of a story? So, yeah, I've always, always had a massive love for that. And I guess in terms of my, as Tony Farina would call it, my origin having a love of all these things when i actually went to university i ended up doing astrophysics so basically i i think i'm a walking talking cliche of the big bang theory except i i, I don't know which one i am but uh yeah again when when that show came out i i must admit i i thought it just became a a little too sitcom-y and, and a bit too cliche but Certainly when it first came out, I'm like, that's actually me. <laughs> In terms of outside of um, geekdom, I, I actually think I possibly am a walking, talking cliche. So like I say, I, I'd studied astrophysics as a degree, um, and then I did a master's in IT. So then I ended up going into an IT job, um, which was basically uh, hooking up or interfacing. When you walk into laboratories and you have these huge instruments that measure something, these mass spectrometers or gas chromatographs or, or whatever. So I used to basically hook up those to databases. And, and I've kind of stuck around ever since. So rather than just hooking up those instruments, I uh, implement those systems. So obviously, okay, so coronavirus is rather topical, you might say right now, isn't it? So if you think about rewind back a year, who had tests for that virus? Well, no one, because it was a brand new virus and, and we had to figure out, okay, how do you detect it? So what I would say is other people, other scientific people do all the hard thinking about, you know, how could we actually do this and, and, and detect it and whatever. And I help basically put in, uh, to in layman's terms, a, a computer system to basically track, you know, what's going on with those samples and those results. So if you go to um, take a, a test or what have you, you fill out your details and actually by the time by the time your sample hits the lab there are regulations about how we need to separate out your personal identity your personally identifiable information from the actual sample so you shouldn't be able to get someone in the lab shouldn't get your sample and go oh look at that let's pull that oh and he's positive as well you know, lucky for you. So you have to basically 
implement systems so that you can separate out this information. So you can separate out that this is Paul and this is your sample. So the people in the lab never see that, that it's actually you. And then you have to marry that all up again later in the process without a human being being able to go in and, and say, okay, look, well, this equals this. And again, they come to the answer it's Paul. Again, it, it's not it's not rocket science, but it's you have to be very, very careful and, and make sure you have the right computer systems in there. So yeah, for, for about 20 years now, I've, I've looked at all things around uh, implementing laboratory computer systems. And um, that's not only from looking at samples and results and things. If you think about following procedures, um, you have to be very, very careful about if someone updates a procedure, um, you have to make sure that everyone is kind of using the latest procedure and things like that. So you have these document management systems. That's all very um, down at the manufacturing end. So if you're you're making aspirin, you go to Superdrug or Boots or what have you, and you expect that if you buy an aspirin, it's going to do what it says on the packet. And you just implicitly believe that. Of course it is, because I've just bought it from the shop. Whereas, you know, we need to make sure that these things are actually tested, that they are safe to consume, that they actually do what they say they're going to do. These all have to be tested. So, so I've spent quite a lot of time down that end of the supply chain. And also, to a lesser extent, but I'm getting more comfortable with it, with the whole drug discovery area. So, you know, it's all well and good producing aspirin. So that's something that, you know, we know what it is. We know all the ingredients. We know how to produce it. But what about all the new treatments and what have you? Those are much harder to, to find. Um, so again, you traditionally, I've kind of possibly unkindly re just referred to it as the gray haired scientists, you know, the really creative, uh, doc Brown type characters who, you know, are, are masters in chemistry and biochemistry and, and, and what have you. And they, they come up with this formula and then this, you know, they're the innovators, and then you just have to figure out a way how to manufacture it. And one of the challenges, like I'm going through, or for, for the last few years, and I imagine for, for a number of years again, is how do you systematically build up that knowledge so that you don't have to keep just relying on some uh, very, very creative genius to come through and, and magically come up with something? Because a lot of the best uh kind of treatments that we have a lot of them were were discovered by accident but part of my current quest is well how do you stop it being an accident how do you use the power of computers and artificial intelligence and machine learning to actually learn about well what what things can we what experiments can we run in the computer world that could actually become treatments of the future so yeah drug discovery is something that um, is a lot more tricky to do to implement uh, computer systems for but it's something that um, yeah keeps me busy for a day job
actually coming up with a therapy that is going to treat a particular problem and be safe for humans it is obviously it's not kid stuff it is very tricky because let's face it if any pharmaceutical company say they they were able to come up with this formula you know which is either you know you could produce in terms of a pill or you know you took an injection and that would clear you of cancer for the rest of your life that pharmaceutical company would suddenly overtake amazon and you know microsoft apple that would be the biggest pharmaceutical company in the world overnight it it, it just it just would so i don't think it's necessarily for the lack of trying that you know people are just not really bothered about manufacturing stuff i think inherently there is a um uncomfortable kind of uh there's market forces which are ethically uncomfortable so the the main so the biggest pharmaceutical companies are the ones with the money that can spend on a lot of research and development and actually other people who do this are your kind of smaller biotech companies you know quite a lot of the time if you have so say down in cambridge you have a lot of bright smart students and you have these kind of startup companies who are looking to uh, find some kind of cure for whatever it is and they're running this uh, you know these experiments and they're trying to develop something so they might be some small company some nimble agile company who can actually find some cool stuff and then if they do then they've got no capability to actually manufacture that and get it out to the marketplace. So so then there's kind of a, a trade-off between, you know, if you have this small company, it, it suddenly discovers, I don't know, let's let's say the next Viagra, you know, or something like that, the Pfizer drug. Then that small company can go to a bigger pharmaceutical company and say, well, can you manufacture this, this thing? And, and they'll do the whole um kind of deal that way i think where it becomes uncomfortable because these big pharmaceutical companies invest so much money into um finding these new drugs and new therapies once they've found them and and it is a long journey this is a decades long process you know because you you have to go from kind of the very small where you're looking at lots and lots of things and and uh you're running all your various experiments and then you're maybe doing some testing on um dare i say animals <laughs> um you're testing on animals first then you're going through clinical trials so you're you know you're testing on human beings in a very controlled way you know so you tend to have one group who um one group will be given the drug that you think is going to work and then one group you usually set them off and give them a placebo a sugar tablet or something like that and you look at the results and then you have to go to the authorities so in the us it's the fda uh, and in the uk you have like the mhra but there is usually some kind of body who are looking after the best interests of the public they they want to make sure that they're not bloody poisoning us all and there have been lots of cases where p- 
people in the past have falsified results and put things out to market and basically caused lots and lots of issues, which is why you have a lot of regulation in um in drugs you know you have to make sure you're not poisoning everyone you know thalidomide was was one of the famous cases where you had deformed um babies and all, all sorts and you know it's a fairly horrible thing and and like i say if you think if you put money making into the mix let's face it if you if you were to produce a batch of something which cured whatever disease it is and, you know, if you sold all of that batch, you'd make £100,000. And it was just, the results came back. And they, it was just out of specification. It just wasn't quite good enough. But it was really close. You know, it was a good, they gave it a good old college try. So it's kind of okay. You know, you think, you would think if you were, if you were like a salesman or something like that, and you were under pressure from your boss, it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, we'll just release it. It'll be fine. It's out of spec, but it's kind of okay, you know. So I've just made the company a hundred thousand dollars. You see how the the money kind of drives that unethical behavior, and so that's why you have to have that regulation in place. You have to have systems in place that make sure that that sort of shit can't happen, and the public, you know, isn't put at risk. And so that's why. You know, the regulators put out their regulations, but also they audit companies as well. You know, make sure, have you got the right systems in place? Can these things be falsified? Are you essentially putting the patients at risk? So, so yeah, but where I was getting to, if you think, making up some figures, but if you think a company invests, I don't know, $10 million into actually taking a drug all the way through. So all the people, all the scientists who've been employed, and it's a bit of a gamble, you know, they're, they're just trying to find this stuff, but they found something that looks promising. And then they've taken that all the way through all the various stages of testing and it goes through clinical trials. And it looks like, hey, this looks like a real, you know, good, uh, let's let's call that AIDS. This, this will be a great uh, therapy, a great medication for AIDS. Now it's gone to market and it costs a lot of money because the company who's invested all that money to produce this thing wants to recoup that cost. They're a business. That's that's kind of why they're in business. But then you think, well, there's such a, a, a disproportionate distribution of wealth throughout the world, isn't there? So should it only be rich people? who get this therapy what about you know what about the people in africa is is it fair for them to suffer knowing that we've got this medication here and we're saying well you can have it can you afford it well no ah well unlucky for you you know that is where i think it is very very difficult and it's something i i kind of wrestling with for the last 20 years because you think, well, there's a lot of companies who say say something like paracetamol, aspirin, those kind of things are off patent. So any generic manufacturer can actually go and, and manufacture those drugs. So because they're not investing into the research and development, they can keep their costs right down. 
because they can keep their costs right down, they can sell them to the the poorer countries and what have you, and and it sets an expectation. You know, if you go into if you go into Aldi and buy some paracetamol, what does it cost? Like fifty p or something like that. It's ridiculously cheap, isn't it? Whereas some of the other medications are, you know, obscenely expensive, and that's because you're paying for all of this research and development time. So, yeah, it, it's a difficult one. It's a really, really difficult one, and I, I wrestle with it on a regular basis. When I'm condensing down what I'm talking about here, I guess you know I'm condensing down twenty years worth of experience in a in a particular field. Usually, when you're on a project, you're you're quite easily lost within the project. You know, you hit with certain deadlines and this damn bit of code just won't work or you know the developer can hit this date on this date and then the bloody person who's supposed to test is you know rather inconveniently on holiday that week you know so you're trying to solve a problem like how how can we do this thing without that person or you know so you're kind of lost in this but it's you know I, I I have to remind myself a lot of the time about what the kind of bigger the bigger picture is. Um but I think, you know, we all we all have a role uh to play in life and, and I think sometimes you just need to take a step back and, and just look at kind of what you, what your impact is on life and, and I think, you know, I, I look at um say my dad my dad is probably one of the least ambitious career wise least ambitious people i think i've ever met right and there was a time in my life where that troubled me and actually now i look at it slightly differently um i don't think he was uh, i don't think he had no ambition in life i just think what his ambition was was to be the best dad that he could possibly be and that meant that he sacrificed other things like a career and going out with his friends to the pub or whatever and then socializing and, and building up his life with sacrificing it for his kids i honestly been been really lucky um because as he never never wanted to do astrophysics um, what I actually wanted to do was sports science. So um, I was always shit at football, quite honestly, but had delusions that I would actually make it as a footballer. And I thought, well, if I couldn't be a footballer, I'd want to be involved in it in some way. So I thought, well, sports science, you know, that seemed like the thing to do. And actually, I, I had no ambition at all to go to university not interested uh probably from at least 16 i i attended as as fewer lessons as i could get away with <laughs> you know, so it, it's not like now where the school snitch on you so i i just bumbled along barely scraped through got a few gcse's um and then i thought right well i'll do some resets manage to get some c's and and carry on a little bit longer and then hung around for a levels it was only luckily 
and I did this through advice from my parents. They said, well, if you take physics, you know, you'll, you'll, have, you'll be able to do whatever you want. I was like, yeah, it's fucking shit, really, isn't it? But it's like, right, okay. So I took a pragmatic decision to go ahead and do that. And again, I had no interest in it. I was the worst student in the world. And I, I think I got an E. You know what I got an E in? General fucking studies, right? Fail physics, fail maths, fail statistics. But I knew a little bit about the world. I got a fucking E. And because of that E, it was the uh, the University of Central Lancashire, which sounds very fucking posh and whatever. You know, it's UCLan. So a little bit like UCLA, but with an N on the end. And it was basically old Preston Polytechnic is what it really fucking was. And so with my, you know, letter that I got where you fail fucking everything, you fucking loser... I, I had a letter from UCLan as well that said, well, you've got one A-level pass, and E, you fucking loser, is the subtext. But uh, we'd actually like to invite you to do a physics uh, HND. And so in that, even though I had done absolutely nothing, and I got exactly the results that I deserved, because I'd done no work. I barely turned up to any lectures. I had no interest in doing pretty much anything. You know, it was all about going out, mixing with friends, you know, having a few drinks when you could get into the pub, try and chat up girls and whatever. That was my life's ambition at that time. So so I got exactly what I deserved. But in that moment, I kind of felt, well, if I stick around, I reset my A-levels, it is standing still so there was something inside me that wanted to move forward and I thought well if I move away from home I get out of this circle of friends that I've got at the time I know I'm not going anywhere so I'll kind of I'll make myself a bit uncomfortable but I know I'll be moving forward and actually it was it was in the not so much in that first year because I carried on as as I was before, not turning up to lectures, failing, and then thinking, well, it's all right, isn't it? It was actually at the end of that year where I realized that, well, actually, fuck, if I don't do something right now, like right now, it's not tomorrow, right fucking now, I'm going to be ending up doing, I don't know, something that someone else wants me to do, whereas I'd like to make the choice on what I want to do. And it was like, from about, I would say, 14 to 19, I was just drifting along. You actually wouldn't recognize me from today. It was like someone switched the light bulb on and just immediately went back, did all my resets, and then came back that second year and just worked my ass off. Because I was so scared that I would just end up, you know... there's nothing wrong with working in a factory or or a warehouse but in that summer I was working in a warehouse and it's fucking hard and it's fucking hard for not a lot of money and I just realized I was staring down the barrel of that for the rest of my life but what I was going to say to you is the up until recent years if you'd have asked me well what motivates me to work? I've said for a long time, 
I work to live. I don't live to work. But even within that, there are certain things that motivate you. And it took, I, I went on this course, of, I think it was a management course, and they were talking about the same thing, like what motivates you. And it was, they, they had all of these different categories. And one of them was salary. And so immediately when they said, well, why do you go to work? It's like, well, let's get paid, pay the mortgage, go on holiday, do nice things. Um, but when they talked about other things, it was like job satisfaction or sense of achievement, you know, actually solving a problem that, you know, you're, you're struggling with, um, socializing with, with people at work. There, there are lots of different aspects to do the job that you do, you know, not cause you can make money doing lots of different things, can't you? You can work at a bar, you can uh, you can be a banker, you can be a solicitor, lawyer. There, there are loads of different jobs out there. But I think a lot of the time people settle on a specific job that motivates them. And for me, what I found out about myself, so my second job, I took on um, like a, a real office hours, regular job, which... You know, it was more nine to five. It was administering computer systems, so not particularly project work. And what I found is, actually, proper nine to five stuff just doesn't interest me at all. <laughs> I find it really dull. I get really bored really quick. And I took a, um, I took a like a personality test a few years ago. I say a few years ago, probably about ten years now. Um, called a Myers Briggs test. And it, it's a brilliant kind of personality test because it, unlike your horoscopes, which you can read and make anything fit pretty much, I read this and I, I came out, you come out with this like four-letter acronym and, and it it's like, you know, ENFP or something like that. I think I think that was mine. And then you read up about what makes up that personality. And one of the first lines when I read up about it was, you you like project work or something like that. You in work you'll gravitate towards projects, and I was like, "Holy fucking shit, that is me." <laughs> um, and it said other things like, "People around you will be surprised because you'll you'll throw yourself into work, but then you'll very quickly go the opposite as well, and you'll party hard." It, it was something like that, you know, and and. Running through that personality test taught me a lot about myself. And it I guess it did a couple of things. Everyone likes to think they're unique. And that taught me, well, no, there's probably quite a lot of people out there who, who are just like me. I just don't necessarily know them. But, you know, I, I think as well, it, it it helps you identify the things you are innately good at, but also the things that you're not so good at and that you can work on and so i'd fully recommend doing those kind of uh, those kind of things i realize that like right now with the world as it's been certainly in the uk the last year it's very difficult to to just choose the job that you want to do um because you know a lot of those jobs 
haven't been available to do and and so times have been incredibly tough i i've been so so lucky and so blessed that because i work in it i i can work from home it's not ideal it's it is better to be face to face a lot of the time especially if you're dealing with complex issues and and you know big old whiteboard is is usually you know for all the techie it tools a big old whiteboard is usually my go-to device to be honest um but you can actually work and so yeah i I realize it, it it's a luxury as well to be able to do that but i would definitely advise anyone out there to really think about what actually motivates you because a lot of us think that it's money and we we just want the money to do whatever it is we want to do but there's lots and lots of different ways to make money and think about you know what it is that actually we spend a lot of our time in work so it's it's too much time to do something you don't enjoy you talk about you can go from really focusing on the project and then completely leave it bringing it back to sort of the geek culture and everything do you think one of the things that maybe keeps you involved in it is escapism you can turn away in batman in space <laughs> you know what i i you know on steve, steve j ray will probably disown me but i think i think this is a mid-40s revelation that i'm occurring to the more batman stories i read the more i think you know what i don't think i'm really into batman which is crazy because batman like i say batman 66 the adam west batman and superman were were, were the only things that were on tv i've left out star wars uh, which is obviously you know it's kind of comic book you know star wars the comic book actually came out before the movie it was kind of a, a bit of a marketing thing, but uh, yeah. So they they had they they initially wanted to do like just a a mini series, so it was like six issues, which was a, a New Hope or what was originally Star Wars, and then you know became a New Hope. Um, but yeah, so release date wise, it actually came out before the movie. But anyway, uh, so yeah, Star Wars was a massive thing for me as a kid. But uh, but yeah, so so Batman, yeah, I just I'm struggling a bit with Batman. Um, just yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Don't know. I'm probably just going through a lull, and then I, next year I'll probably be back on the train. But I think the reason I'm pontificating a little bit is because what one of my favorite graphic novels is an absolutely haunting, horrible story. And it's called Mouse. It's by a guy called Art Spiegelman. And this is a um, it's a black and white comic. So it's it's Mouse as in M A U S. And basically, it's it's told in terms of uh, it's basically a story about what it was like to be a Jew in uh, in Germany around the the late nineteen thirties, early. 1940s and the the jews are the mice and the nazis are the uh the cats and it is it is harrowing (laughs) it is absolutely harrowing because 
it's told in this kind of it's not quite a cartoon style but i guess that's kind of what it is you know it's 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 mice and cats you know we all know mice and cats grew up watched lots of tom and jerry it's just a bit funny isn't it but you only have to start reading it and you you need to stop at times and then think well this is what was actually happen, happening, but not to mice, you know, to, to human beings. And I, I like the way these, I mean, they're all just fantasy, aren't they? So whether you're talking about Lord of the Rings or uh, Game of Thrones, or you're talking about Spider-Man or Batman or whatever, it's all, it's all just fantasy. But it's always, it, it is escapism without a doubt, but it's escapism not necessarily to a good place, but it it takes you to a place where it makes you think about your place in the world. And so, you know, kind of the Second World War is something that occupies my mind quite a lot. Because the, the thing that fascinates me about the Second World War, First World War was all about imperialism. You know, it was basically Germany, and they were still a young country. They they um, hadn't actually become a unified country until um, not long before that, and they had a, a fantastic navy that absolutely rivaled the British. But they were trying to grow their borders. They were trying to expand their horizons. Exactly the fucking same that the British did. That, that's all they were doing. They were just trying to copy the British model. That's all the Germans were trying to do in the First World War. Um, and then no one lost really that war, but you know the the Germans just lost the um, the kind of fight. They were losing the the politics at home, so they they ended up you know they had to to back down. And then as history gets wrote, they they were blamed for everything then, and so they they took a really hard time of it. You know the man on the street was made to suffer for the imperialistic ambitions that, that their leaders had. And then that that kind of births an extremism in people. And one of the reasons the Second World War fascinates me is because how can you take us human beings? We like to think we're quite evolved, aren't we? We're not evolved. We're not any more evolved than when Shakespeare was writing stories. The technology around us has evolved and moved forward, but the way our kind of brains work has not evolved. And I'm interested, how do you take a progressive nation nation like Germany and you create a Nazi culture? That's what for years has fascinated me. I'm afraid it is getting a little bit deep, isn't it? But this is one of the reasons I've been so fascinated in the last, let's say, four to five years about what is going on in the US. I grew up in the 80s. I absolutely have this love affair with the United States. And, you know, everything is is fantastic over there. They do things so well. They, they you know, in love with the whole country. But you've seen this right-wing extremism be nurtured throughout, you know, the these uh, the rhetoric. The rhetoric is the best tool 
for extremism, isn't it? You know, don't talk about specifics. Just create a an evil minority like the Jews or Mexicans, you know, and just talk about them. They're, basically, it speaks to everyone at the ground level about this is uh, all the problems you have in life, all of them are basically down to this select group of people and you demonize them you dehumanize them that's that's one of the steps to fascism and it just the worrying things that have been happening over the last four years to me culminated in a bunch of people storming the capital in washington in the uh flying the flag of the united states it's it's like they don't realize they were the terrorists. They were kind of fighting for their freedom. And 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 you think, Christ, this is how that, that messaging works. And and you know what? They, I'm not a massive fan of the Star Wars prequels, but when all that was going on, um I couldn't help think back to the there was a moment. So so the thing the prequels did well as a story, I don't think they the dialogue was a bit shit and it was a bit ham fisted how it was directed, quite honestly. But the way it told that story of this this kind of um thriving culture, but it had the whole republic and the senate and what have you. And the emperor, old, old Palpatine, there was pulling the strings behind. He was creating this um, this extremist in Count Dooku, you know, and he's he's kind of getting the Jedi to to act against them and whatever. And he ends up, you know, he's convinced everyone that they're living in fear. And so, yeah, the the basically the the thing they have to do, they have to bring in these these. Uh, extreme measures to basically give Palpatine all of the power, you know, but it's just while we deal with these terrorists and then it'll all go back to normal. And um, Padme says, so this is how Liberty dies to thunderous applause. And I thought that was an absolutely brilliant line for all the shit lines that George Lucas wrote in terms of his dialogue. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And and she's right. And what he was telling a story of there was of what happened in Germany. People didn't think, oh, no, we're giving up our civil rights and, you know, we're, we're going to this dictatorship and it's it's terrible. No, they were they were chanting and happy. And you've got this uh, charismatic leader. Who's going to, you know, again, solve all the world's problems. We're going to deal with the enemies who are, again, these dehumanized um, beings. And and so, yeah, I think, there you go. You didn't, when we started this, you didn't think we'd go from Star Wars to uh, Nazi Germany to um, the attack on the Capitol earlier this year, did you? <laughs> Maybe escapism is the wrong word. Maybe it's exploring the human nature in all of extremes, in all the different ways, in a way to understand what the hell is going on in the world. There, there is a bit of that. So, so I, I must admit, I find, I find a comfort in the Marvel universe, quite honestly. So, like, I say I like. In fact, I'm saying that 
Right, so I said my my kind of love of things is the X-Men. You think about what that really is. It's the uh, the idea that you've got this oppressed minority. Now, whether whether you consider that is something which is a racism thing, maybe it's a misogynistic thing, maybe it's a um, transphobic thing, uh, Islamophobic thing. Ultimately, you... I think, honestly, through reading those early stories in the X-Men have shaped my young little mind back then about, well, if you, you remember Civil War, remember the um, almost philosophical debate is, well, if you had superheroes here in the world, wouldn't you want them to be licensed and controlled by the government? You wouldn't want these people with these fantastic powers to... Um, you wouldn't want someone who could just blow themselves up to just be walking around the street. They could be they could be living next door to you, and, and you'd never know. So wouldn't you want them controlled? I think you would. And, and that, is, that is your immediate response. And that's that's kind of in, in the comics. That's Iron Man's position. And in uh, in the X Men comics, you see a lot of this in terms of um, uh, the the government, the way they want to control the mutants and they want to register them. And you see all the negative things because on its own, that is not a terrible thing. But then you start to think, well, if if everyone's registered. You know, maybe everyone who is in power doesn't have completely virtuous intentions. You know, so if someone has all of that information, maybe they can use that for their own agenda. So I think, is it an escapism or is it educating yourself? I think, I think it's a bit of both. I think it's, you know, I, I could choose more prose kind of novels to to read about the world and and educate myself that way but instead I choose to to read this through the prism of of Captain America and Iron Man so I find it interesting and entertaining to go through um but as well I think for me I I do kind of agonize about these things afterwards as well and I think well what okay that was the the one and a half, two hour entertainment that I got, what was it actually saying? What, what what were the main messages in that story? And sometimes there isn't one. <laughs> you know, uh, some of the crappy B movies that I watch as well, they, they, there's no subtext, there's no deeper level. It, it, what you see is what you get. But I do like about a, a lot of the comics, and, and I do think a lot of the the writers I, I know on the our discord channel we we were discussing ed brew rate baker recently and i talked talked to tony about um uh, an ed brew baker story called pulp and that was about escaping your um violent history you know and can you if, if you've had a violent history can you go on and just forget that completely put that back in your in your past and then go on and create a new life so Again, I, I kind of can read these stories 
and without becoming a mass murderer or serial killer or whatever, I can, I can, as a thought experiment, I can play these things out and I can think, oh, well, how would he feel in that scenario? And could he actually go and do that? So, yeah, it's part entertainment and part trying to educate yourself as well. I do think there is still a stigma about uh, being a comic book reader right now. So I think the bar is less. If you say you're into the MCU movies or something like that, I think that's kind of okay. That's, you know, in fact, in the last 10 years, it's pretty unavoidable, isn't it? All the big budget things, a lot of them have been comic book movies. But to actually admit to being a comic book um, reader, I, actually, it was one of those things I used to uh, bring up in workshops. So, you know, when you're brought together in, in a group of people that you don't know and you want to create those icebreakers, so you might say, uh, you know, tell us something about yourself that, that not many people know. Quite often I'd roll out that, that you know, I like to, to read comic books as being my quirky little uh, thing that people probably wouldn't expect from me. And I think I, I put myself back into what I was talking about before with Stan Lee, where he was saying he was a bit embarrassed. And I think, I'll be honest, hand on heart, I would love to say that I go out, chest out, bold as brass. Yeah, I read comic books. What the hell of it? I do tell people because it is part of my makeup, but... There is still that ingrained thing within me that is a little bit embarrassed about it, you know, because, and and especially when I kind of rediscovered comic books in in the mid 2000s, I I would tell people and friends and stuff. And it was like, oh, Christ, what are you, like eight years old? (laughs) And and they're thinking of the the comic books that, that they would have read. And I think the problem is, when you read a comic book at eight years old, I guarantee you didn't understand it. If you were reading Justice League or, you know, Spider-Man or whatever, there were themes and stories in there you did not understand. You thought you did because you looked at the pictures. And it's only going back when you're a bit older and you realize, Christ, these were heavy-hitting issues, you know, and... um stories about identity and you know figuring out who you are you know I I think about Spider-Man in particular you know really having uh, teenage issues just with growing up with being a bit different trying to make your way in the world um, dealing with problems that that teenagers and early 20s guys have so so actually there is a stigma but it's kind of a little bit unfair because you know the i think it's possibly turning around um but generally speaking i think it's still looked down as a kind of lower um a lowbrow medium now i think the the thing that might be turning it around is certainly when you have uh movies coming out or you have series like one division's just come out is a lot more people are interested then about well, what do the comics say? What what's going to happen? What are the actual stories that might give us a clue as to what's happening in this uh, in this TV show? 
But um, yeah, I, I do think. I don't know if it will ever change. Um, not not necessarily in my lifetime. And I think you know that's that's what evolution is, isn't it? I think a lot of your self is kind of shaped in those early years of you as a person. And so growing up in the 80s, you know, the the 80s shaped me and I try and refine myself, but I've still got a lot of the hard wiring back from those times. And so, yeah, a a little bit um, cautious about who I admit to that I'm a, a huge comic book fan. One of the things which is a scar that I bear that, that I still try and I try and completely wipe away, but it's still there with me. I remember again. I, I can't I can't quite remember what age I was. I wasn't at, at senior school, so I was certainly under eleven. So whether I was eight, ten, nine, I, I'm not sure. But I remember being at junior school, and and we walked to the local library to pick up a book and I I picked up Asterix and I remember the teacher saying aren't you a bit old for comic books (laughs) and I remember just being utterly ashamed by that I was like yeah but I like it (laughs) and and the thing that I'd say is whether it's whether society deems that whatever hobby or thing that interests you is a geeky hobby or whether it's something else like say i like playing guitar um like binging netflix series which probably most of us do after lockdown even if you didn't start off doing um whatever it is that that you enjoy i almost think fuck society you know there there are all right, there are boundaries within that. If you like killing small animals, then you're fucking psycho and, and probably shouldn't, you know, uh, do that too much. But, you know, within reason, if you enjoy doing it, just fucking do it and don't give a shit about what other people think. You can hear more from Dave on his podcasts, Comics in Motion. VHS Strikes Back, Chris and Dave's Reality Cast, and Back to the Office. You can contact him on Twitter at Seattle Dojos. Super Dummy production for Fantastic Universes. Find out more at fantasticuniverses.com and superdummy.co.uk slash geek. You can contact the show on Twitter at Era of Geek or by email geek at superdummy.co.uk. You can support the show and Fantastic Universes by joining our Patreon, patreon.com slash fantasticuniverses. See, this is probably a bit off the track on uh, uh, geekism, but probably about two years ago, I started dabbling with veganism.
Now, I always had the perception that like vegans were just fucking they were they were trying to show off vegetarians. You know, it's like you're vegetarian, but that's not enough for you. You have to fucking take it another level and and be a fucking vegan. So not only will you not eat meat, you won't bloody have milk and cheese and all this stuff. What is wrong with you? And then I, I started to learn more about it, and then I kind of figured out that well, actually, if you if you're vegetarian for the animals, then actually there's no point you being vegetarian. And again, I'm not going to get on my high horse about why that is exactly, but but the reasons you you're almost better eating meat than say prolonging uh, a cow that is that is giving milk for its whole lifetime so so just either eat meat as to your heart's content or be a vegan what i noticed about society at that time so i was just dabbling i was trying to trying to figure out uh what being a vegan would be what i found out is everyone is suddenly immensely interested in what you choose to eat and people, the stock things are like, well, where do you get your protein from? You know, and and calcium, are you basically, you're you going to get fucking rickets or scurvy or <laughs> not so much scurvy because you're all right with limes there, aren't you? But certainly rickets and fucking protein, you're going to wither away to nothing. You know, people have these weird perceptions and like Piers Morgan, what a fucking see you next Tuesday is, right? You know, Greg's decided they'd release a um, a, a vegan sausage roll, and he's he, he was so offended by that. You know, he he pretended to to try and eat one on national TV, and was then like, you know, pretending to throw it up in a bin and stuff because he's he's wholly offended by the idea that you would want to. Uh, eat plants instead of dead animals. I, I I don't get it. And what I again, what I figured out about society, they they're just kind of repulsed by things they don't understand. And like I say, I, I couldn't believe how many people were suddenly interested with what I put in my body. It's like fucking weird. So I, I think it in a weird way it is a parallel to reading comic books. It's like well. If I choose to, you know, on a fucking Tuesday night when there's when I'm not watching anything on TV, open up a comic book and and read something, as opposed to watching EastEnders, why are you offended by that? <laughs> you know, I, I I don't know the answer to why that is, but I think I'm old enough now to not give a fuck about it. <laughs>